Oh, welcome to Left Out, the reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and on the World Wide Web at uh, leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news and current events from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Brandon Kuczynski. As usual, listeners are welcome to call us at uh, 412-CMU-WRCT. That's 412-268-9728. And we also monitor electronic mail during the program. And you can uh, send us mail by sending mail to uh, bob at leftout.info. Okay, uh, a few announcements as usual to begin our show to remind our listeners to uh, listen to Democracy Now! every morning on uh, WRCT at 8 a.m., 8 to 9 a.m. That's uh, Amy Goodman's program on Pacifica Radio Network, brought, here, brought to you here on WRCT by the Pittsburgh Campaign for Democracy Now! Also on Wednesdays, uh, we have Fighting Lefty Review. On Mondays, Rust Belt Radio, both at 6 p.m. And alternating with us is uh, Revealed on Tuesdays, uh, every other Tuesday, uh, opposite Left Out. So today we have uh, we have a very special guest we're proud to have on, on Left Out uh, is Professor uh, Edward Herman. He's a professor emeritus from the Wharton School, professor of finance, which is the school business school at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's uh, an economist, first of all, I think professionally, and but very famous as a well-known as a media analyst. And he specializing in both domestic and uh, politics and foreign affairs. And he's been the author of a number of books, one of which uh, I've read a few years back, with he, which he co-authored with uh, with uh, Noam Chomsky, called "Manufacturing Consent." Uh, Professor Herman, uh, welcome to the program. Glad to be with you, Bob and Danny. So, um, yes, well, maybe we could just start out um, generally with uh, the point of view that you, uh, the thesis that you developed with Noam Chomsky in, in "Manufacturing Consent." I've got the book in front of me, um, but uh, maybe in your own words, you could just uh, give us a a starting point for discussing it. Well, the book is based on our belief that the media are part of a of the corporate establishment and that they serve elite interests. They are not uh, uh, performers in the strict public interest, meaning that all elements of the population are served with with equal stress by them. And we, we offer in this, that book and, I, and all through our writings a structural analysis of the media. We, we believe that you can see what the media does, of course, by, by observing it, but you can understand it by looking at their structural position. And, and um, we laid this out in, in terms of what we call the propaganda model, a model that tries to show that the media ultimately are propaganda agents of the elite, that they serve that elite uh, when the crunches come, when the issues are really important to the elite, they serve that elite. Uh, anyway, the propaganda model uh, has five elements that we think are really important in explaining how the media work. One is, is the question of ownership. Who owns the media? And of course, in our system, the media is almost entirely owned by private owners, stock is issued, and those owners are interested in making money, but some of them are, are ideological, and even those that aren't ideological tend to be rather conservative. The one thing we, the first edition of this book in 1988, before the first edition, I did some computations on the ownership of the 25 largest media corporations. <clears throat> and I found that the, the median wealth, ownership wealth, just in the, paper, the, the news media itself, the media wealth among the 25, median wealth was $500 million. And by a, by a fluke, that was the New York Times. In other words, the the, the family ownership in the New York Times back in, in 1987-88 was a half a billion dollars. It's more than doubled since then. Wait, you mean that, that the, the the total value of the corporate no, of the stock owned by the the major owners of the New York Times? No, was, no only by the, the Salzberger family, only by the family group that owned it. Okay. So, anyway, the, the point was to, to show that that 
the owners were very wealthy and they were hardly likely to be to be radicals or even liberals and of course since 1988 the, the media has become more concentrated ownership has fallen into the hands of of some owners who were really quite ideologically oriented like like of course most conspicuously rupert murdoch uh, and of course general electric company owns the nbc system anyway the, 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 the first element in the propaganda model is ownership and we believe that ownership has a, a powerful effect in a, in the way that the media operate the second element in the model was ad advertising, which is the, the, the main funding source of the mainstream media. And of course, the advertisers for the big boys are, are usually pretty large companies, and those, those advertisers have to be satisfied. They don't usually interfere directly with them the way the media work, but the media have to convince the advertisers that, that they want to advertise on their stations or, or in their newspapers. So they have to create a friendly advertising environment. And of course, the media compete uh, with one another for to get these advertising revenues. So they, they have a strong incentive to do what the advertiser wants, to provide the kinds of programs that, that help sell goods and that possibly meet the ideological standards of the advertisers. So that's, that was, that's element two. Third element is sourcing. And the media, of course, are looking for sources for news, and they want, they want sources that are credible and that are not too expensive to, to uh, identify and to use. And so the... the, the inexpensive and credible sources are those sources that make life easy for the advertiser that provide them with good copy and um, facilities and they're they're credible and to be credible you have to be well known so for example the, the state department is pretty well known and if you take a handout from the state department which they offer every day you're on pretty safe grounds because this is news because these people make the news and it's the U.S. government. So who can complain if you just offer the, something from them? But if you have some dissident group, some small dissident group, uh, that's a little trickier because are, are, are they legitimate? Are they believable? Well, well you, using them gets you in difficulty with the, the primary uh, sources. So there's a, a real bias toward gravitating toward the big boys, the corporations, the government agencies, and so on. These are what are called the primary definers. So they have an edge, and the bigger the media, the more important it is to get the steady flow of information that these primary definers can offer. So that injects an important element of bias. Then the fourth element in the, in the model is what we call flack spelled F-L-A-K, mm -hmm. meaning negative feedback. And uh, that also can influence the media if the negative feedback is, is voluminous, if it's from people who count, like advertisers or government agencies. And in the last 20 years, what's happened in the United States and, of course, across the globe is that outfits have developed like Accuracy in, in Media and the Center for Media Studies, uh, the Media Institute, actually there are dozens of them, in institutions that are created for the purpose of generating, producing flag and going after the media and criticizing them. And of course, the, prim the primary definers themselves, like the Pentagon, watch the media all the time. And if the media do things that they don't like, they let them know. If you cross the, the the big boys severely enough, or just cross them even a, a modest amount, you're likely to have something backfire. One of the most famous programs of this, that generated this kind of backfire was one that CBS put on. I think it was back in the early 70s. They had a program on the Pentagon on various crookeries 
and the Pentagon's purchases of, of, with contractors. The Pentagon was furious, the contractors were furious, and before you know it, CBS people were brought before Congress to defend themselves for having put up this program on the Pentagon and its contractors. So that's flack that counts. And there's a, 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 a close relationship between power and ability to generate flack that counts. So that's another force that, that tends to cause the media to, to be very careful and not try to not hurt powerful people. And the, the fifth and last element of this model is ideology. And when we wrote the book in 1988, the only thing we threw in was anti-communism, which we considered to be a virtual U.S. religion and something that always could be used to discipline the media. If they stepped out of line, if they supported or said anything nice about Cuba or, or even uh, anybody who could be tagged with the communist label or could be said to be in any way sympathetic or friendly to communism, you could go after them and they would be worried. This was particularly true of the Democrats who were always thought to be soft on communism. Mm -hmm. So they had to always be proving themselves. And this, this, this was always leveled against them. But it, with the death of communism, we, we decided to throw in something that also was a very important ideological element, namely the, the free market, the private enterprise, as an ideological element, and I think it's very important. So anyway, we have these five elements that constitute the propaganda model, and our argument is that these all tend to bias the media very heavily in favor of what the very dominant elite interests in society want. They're the ones that produce a lot of the news, but if there's any contrary, any news that they don't like comes to, into the orbit of the media, it has to go through these filters. It has to be not daily approved by the owners or the advertisers, but all, all these elements tend to be a kind of kind of filter. So if right. we stress, for example, in manufacturing consent, the comparison between the media treatment of solidarity in Poland back in 1980, 81, mm -hmm. and the Turkish military regime's treatment of labor in Turkey in the same time. Hmm. Well, for solidarity, a communist was fighting a communist regime. They got enormous publicity from the U.S. media. But the Turkish treatment of their trade unions, which was actually more violent than the than this treatment of solidarity, got almost no coverage in the U.S. media. It couldn't get through these filters very well. It didn't meet the anti-communism standard. It, if, if there had been a lot of coverage of it, there would have been flag, would have been flagged from uh, elements in the in the State Department, Pentagon, and the Turkish embassy that they would have had to worry about. Uh, as far as sourcing goes, the U.S. official sources certainly weren't going to give you anything on what well, the nasty things being done to Turkish labor. That the Turkish military guard was our ally. And so there was great silence from our official sources, and the owners, of course, would line up here, too, in the advertising. So anyway, the filters worked in that way. So, so that the, the, the Turkish treatment of their unions was almost entirely neglected. Funny thing is, too, we... I, in fact, I think maybe in this article in Z Magazine, I mentioned the differential treatment of, of the minor strike in the Soviet Union back in the late 80s and the treatment of the Pittston strike here in the United States, which was a major mining strike. Yeah, that's a beautiful example, if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, um, it is a beautiful example. So let, me just make a, let me just make a general comment to, to, to yeah. fill in the framework of the book a little bit. So you, you mentioned the five components of the propaganda model, that it's yeah. sort of an abstract logical structure that, that explains the, the, the problem with the media, but the book doesn't just have an, a lot of abstract sort of theoretical stuff. It, it, it demonstrates through 
examples, and also the Z Magazine article does too, uh, uh, the ways in which stories are distorted and come out, the way they go in and the way they come out. Uh, it, it, to, so it, it's not just a theoretical sort of thesis. It's, oh, it's no. that backed up by voluminous documentation and many yeah. stories which should be parallel and should be treated the same, but because similar things happening in slightly different contexts, one of which goes against the uh, the elite, one which doesn't, and you see the completely different way in which these things are. are oh, yeah. Well, that's what I was saying in regard to the Turkish unions and solidarity. Good. So the, as you say, the whole book, the propaganda model is chapter one. And right. The whole rest of the book is case studies. So that's what I would like to what I would like to talk about next. Um, but before we do that, let me just mention to our listeners. So we're talking to Professor uh, Edward, Edward Herman, who's a retired or emeritus professor of finance from University of Pennsylvania, who's uh, well known for uh, his uh, comment, uh, commentary on uh, political, domestic, and foreign affairs. And he's the author of a book uh, some years ago called Manufacturing Consent, which is what we're talking about at the moment. And more recently, uh, one thing that uh, caught our attention was an article he's written on. Uh, Z Magazine, zmag.org, uh, called the New York Times versus the Civil Society. And we'd like to talk a little bit more about the examples in the book and also those in this article. Uh, listeners, if you w or would like to call us, are welcome to call us as usual at 412-268-9728-412-CMU-WRCT uh, or send mail to bob at leftout.info. So, Professor Herman, I have to say that when I read uh, Manufacturing Consent in late 88, uh, it was uh, really a revelation for me because it was the first moment that some Someone, for for me anyway, had synthesized these ideas in a, in a form that I could really buy, and I, I found it really compelling. And I'm sorry to say that over the intervening years since then, it's been about whatever it is, 17 years or something, um, it's only borne out to be even more true. In fact, I find it to be a model that I constantly refer back to in, in my own my own thinking and discussions because it seems so, uh, it, it just seems to, to play out exactly as you predict. So I wondered if you could take some favorite example. You mentioned the Pittston minor strike versus the Soviet minor strike. Well, that's a, that's a very simple example. The, the Pittston miners went on strike in, in Pennsylvania against the miners. They, they actually had a big sit-down, uh, takeover of, of, a, of a mine. <clears throat> and uh, it was a major development in the U.S. in a period when labor was under a lot of attack and stress. Labor was really being the labor movement was under attack in the, in the 1980s from the Reagan administration on downward. Reagan administration and mm -hmm. with, with the Reagan administration's help, the business community. They, right. They, from the late 70s, business was uh, breaking the old social contract and arrangements with organized labor. They were not going to go along with the old deal, and they've been trying ever since. Successfully, to, to dismantle the labor movement. In fact, you could make a, a slight aside. You could make a case that Karl Marx becomes more relevant in, in the, the, the last 20 years because it was a fundamental theme of Marx was the importance of the reserve army of labor as a, as a disciplinary force. And what has happened, especially uh, in the with the development of global communications and the death of the Soviet Union and the greater mobility of capital is that the whole world has become the, the, provided the reserve army of labor so that American business can go to China and, and is doing so on a huge scale and Indonesia, they went first to, the, to Mexico but it's broadened beyond the Caribbean and Mexico and to to these distant places, Indonesia and China particularly. So this, of course, is a very powerful... You could put it in terms of the reserve army. The reserve army is for looking at the American business labor struggle. The reserve army for the American business community is not just unemployed Americans. It's the Chinese... Uh, peasantry, which is coming into these towns, and will be working for 30 cents an hour under un, no labor, under uh, uh, conditions of no labor union protection. So, so you've got 
you've, you've got we've got a, a real revolutionary situation. You could argue that that the Marxian model has become more applicable, and business is taking advantage of it to scrap the social contract, especially with the death of the Soviet Union and any socialist threat. So we're moving, arguably, toward a, a, a global uh, free market in which which labor is, is it a huge loss. Yeah. It's really, it's a frightening scene. Uh, let, me, let me just take this back just one second to summarize the the point about the Pittston strike that you mentioned. This is in an article that you wrote in Z Magazine where it says that basically it compares two strikes, one which took place in Poland in the yeah. early 1980s was a minor strike, of, I think, also... Russia, in Russia. In Russia. In Russia. Russia. Okay, yeah. Russian minor strike in the late 80s. Yeah. And that story got a tremendous amount of coverage in the New York Times. It got yeah. 15 full-length articles, seven beginning on page one, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the Pittston strike in Pennsylvania got essentially almost no coverage in the New York Times. But it it never concentrated. And uh, never no front page coverage except when the strike was over. So it does fit a model of elite uh, uh, concern. The New York Times is clearly uh, not serving the the interests of labor in in neglecting the coverage of this and the important issues in the American strike. But here they are going to Russia and paying a lot of attention to a Russian minor strike, yeah. which, of course, fit the U.S. foreign policy mm-hmm. agenda of the time. But the, the neglect of the month of the Pittston strike was a beautiful illustration of the fact that, that they're, not, they're, not, they're not very friendly toward labor. Let me just uh, let me just make it. I thought I was reading the beginning of the book, um, getting ready for the show, and I found this uh, nice a little passage dealing with conspiracy theories. So, um, no, so this, this is very germane. It says uh, institutional uh, critiques such as we present in this book are commonly dismissed by establishment commentators as quote conspiracy theories unquote, but this is merely an evasion. I'm reading from the book, yeah. um, and so you can talk about why this isn't. It makes no sense to talk about this as a conspiracy, but something else. So maybe you can just explain that. Explain what would the, why why this is not a conspiracy. Right. Right. You know, well, we're just. Uh, I, I would never contend that the New York Times is doing this in collusion with others. It's just that they all. Uh, in fact, usually when the when reporters all jump on a, a similar bandwagon, they're doing it <coughs> because. They're subject to the same drives and constraints that are laid out in the in the propaganda model and their own internal biases. So, uh, one, I would never suggest that the New York Times was, was doing these things because it's agreeing with somebody or getting instructions from somebody outside the paper. They're doing this because this is this is the interest structure, the interest structure that the New York Times itself honors and then reflects their own uh, biases, which are very similar to those of most of the other media. So, in in fact, it's just a natural consequence of your model. In fact, that's the thing that I find so compelling, is that it doesn't doesn't require any form of collusion or collaboration or conspiracy in order to achieve this kind of uniformity of point of view, because it's simply explained by the forces that govern it. Yeah, we, we even say that it's much more a market model than a, uh, a, a conspiracy or, or a control model. It's, uh, it, it, it's, the, it's market forces that are, are essentially doing this. Of course, when we talk, when we talk about that ideology, that fifth feature, mm-hmm. that ideology itself comes out of the underlying power structure of the system. And we, what the, this is a prime, the dominant elements in America are the, the business firms and the corporate community is really overwhelmingly important. It hires the workers, it makes enormous profits, it pays a lot of the taxes, it funds elections, it, it, it is a dominant institution by a towering margin. And this may even have been increased in, in, in recent years. So out of that institutional 
uh, arrangement where the, the corporation is so unbelievably important comes an ideology that reflects their interests. So if they, they obviously believe in private property and they believe in, in free mar- relatively free markets with exceptions that, that, uh, that they will accept, you know, if, if they really need them. But the whole neoliberal ideology, free trade, reflects what the business community wants. I, I've, in, in considering the, the bias of the media, I always love to focus on the North American Free Trade Agreement. Mm-hmm. And you know, back in 1993-94, when here Clinton was in office, right. a Democrat, so supposedly a liberal Democrat, and his Democratic... Uh, members of Congress and the Senate who didn't like the North Americans. The majority of them were very opposed to it. But the the polls, in spite of the fact that the media had had a steady tattoo of pro-NAFTA propaganda, the polls always showed that something like 60 to 70 percent of the public didn't want these agreements. Nevertheless, A, Clinton spends a huge amount of his capital getting this agreement through. Why would he do that? Why would a a Democratic president, when his underlying constituency is very hostile to this, why will he give up so much of his capital to get through this agreement that his constituency doesn't want, but of course the business community does? And then you have the media in the picture, too. They were almost uniformly favorable to the North American Free Trade Agreement, although the public wasn't. I mean, here you have an absolutely beautiful illustration of how, A, the media are serving uh, uh, not the public interest, as the public understands that interest, but at the interest of the corporate community. And then, B, here you have Bill Clinton, the liberal Democrat, who seems to think that it is in his interest as a politician to go against his own constituency and serve the business community. I, yeah. think, that's, I think that's a very enlightening case. Well, I actually, think, the, the, the phenomenon of, of the politicians going against their the constituencies is actually a really widespread, um, much more broad, broader than just that example. It, I mean, there was a reading, actually, a book by Jimmy Carter, a new book that just came out. Um, oh, R&D. Jimmy Carter? Yeah, by Jimmy Carter, of all people. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, he, he's... I, uh, his book, I mean, I, I just started reading the book, so I don't know uh, the whole thing yet, but one one part of he mentions is this issue of polls, and he points out that uh, people believe and have agreed with policies uh, overwhelmingly that have, that have been defeated um, and that are being defeated. And, and for example, um, um, the right to uh, the, um, you know, choice, the choice, you know, the option to have an abortion is, is yeah. overwhelming, you know, yeah. very, very, a, a large majority. Uh, gun controls, a large majority of people want gun controls. Um, yeah. A lot of these issues that, um, the, 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 the polit- somehow the <clears throat> politicians have chosen to go against the, the wishes of their, you know, large yeah. majority. Environmental regulations, um, you know, the, reducing dependence on foreign oil. I mean, all yeah. of these things. Yeah, they're important cases. Uh, one of my favorites is defense, too. Defense, spending on defense. I know. I, uh, you, you will, I've, I've been studying this for years, but Polix, except in times of war or stoked fears, the p- polls show that the public always wants less defense spending and more spending on, on schools and infrastructure, but they never, that never happens. And, and also, I've, I find the, the party alignment here in, in year 2000 when Bush was running against Gore. Both of them were in favor of a larger military budget. The only person in the, in the picture who wasn't was uh, Ralph Nader. And I still remember that beautiful editorial in the New York Times explaining why Nader didn't have to be a participant in the debates. Right. It was because the two big parties re- reflected all the uh, the differences that the public needed. I know. I thought that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Even though the public was actually against the policy that both yeah, of them exactly. had been pushing forward. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite books I should mention is a, a book called Golden Rule by Tom Ferguson. 
Maybe you're not familiar. I, you know that book? No, I don't. Oh, it's a terrific book. It's it's a subtitle of something like an investment theory of of political party competition. And in that this book, one of the things he says in there that is pertinent to what we're talking about, he says he believes that the parties are really dominated by in different investor groups that that overlap, but the. But these investor groups are decisive in, in orienting the parties in terms of their policy drift. And so one thing he says is that if the, the, both the investors, if all the investors agree on some issue, then that issue will not be subject to party competition. Talk about defense. All the investors, agree on virtually that. all of them, think that our, our foreign policy, you know, the basic drift of uh, our foreign policy and our big, big defense budget is defensible. Therefore, the two parties will not compete on that subject. It's a, it's a pretty illustration of the Ferguson theory, which I think is, is quite is quite enlightening at, at, at that level. Is Ferguson a professor at UCLA? No, I think he, he was at Texas, and I think he's still up in in University of Mass in, okay. in Boston. Mm -hmm. So we're talking to uh, uh, Professor uh, Edward Herman, from a formerly re a retired professor in the University of Pennsylvania, who's a well-known political commentator. He's been talking to us. Uh, he's talking to us today about a number of subjects, uh, primarily about the way in which the news media, the the Chomsky, the Chomsky Herman propaganda model, explains how the news media coalesces on a story and manufactures consent within society and within rather narrow bounds that serve the interests of the real political and corporate elite. Um, Ed, I, I noticed that you uh, wrote an article in the um, Inky Watch about the, um, the, the headline. Uh, maybe you could talk about the headlines in today's Philadelphia Inquirer and what you think that, that how you reacted to that. Yeah, the Inquirer. George Bush spoke at, in Philadelphia on yesterday, and uh, he gave a speech in which he mentioned, for the first time, he mentioned that the number of civilian casualties in uh, Iraq, and he gave the figure of 30,000. So the inquiry puts this in the headline, Bush, 30,000 civilian casualties, and they had the same headline on page three, continuation. And in the whole article, they, they do mention that there there is a, um, some there is some group that collects data, I forget the name of the group. Uh, Iraq, body, Iraq Body Count. Yeah, Iraq, Iraq Body Count. Yeah, Iraq Body Count has given about 30,000 too. But, but what strikes me is that there was a powerful article in Lancet magazine by a group that did a sample of households, meant thousands of Iraqi households, using a, a, a widely accepted model for figuring out uh, uh, death rates. And they came up with a figure, that, uh, their point estimate was 100,000, 100,000 civilian casualties. And this was many months ago, six months ago. So, But the, this Inquirer article never mentioned this, this figure. And the, 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 uh, and the, the article just assumes that George Bush is an honest man. I mean, here's a guy who lied us into a war and who, in my, I think, uh, oh, he, he has Baron Munchausen beaten. He, he and Cheney have been steady liars. And they also are well known to, to when they talk, their talks are, are not talks to enlighten the people. Their talks are to try to put a good face on whatever they want to do. So it seems to me that a, a decent newspaper or a decent TV station is going to look at what George Bush says with a little bit of skepticism. It won't just keep repeating what he says as if this is straightforward news that is to be uncontested as it goes or maybe contested a week later. I think this is, this is uh, press, what is called, sometimes called press release journalism, mm -hmm. which is terrible journalism. So the inquiry does this uh, on a more, more or less daily basis. They just, of course, 
you may, may be aware of the fact that, that the Inquirer is one of the Knight Ritter papers right. under pressure right now right. because the Knight Ritter is being threatened by some investors. One of its main investors, right. That, and uh, so Knight Ritter is trying to crack down on and it caused the firing of 100 people at the, Inky, at the Inquirer and they're under a lot of pressure to, to economize and I think they're also a lot under a lot of pressure to be very careful to not offend anybody important. And they've, and I've been I've been writing on the Inquirer for decades. I I even had an article some years ago called the the Inky and Me, <laughs> as like Roger and Me. It was mm-hmm. modeled on Roger and Me. Mm-hmm. And I, then I had another article about 19, a couple of years ago called Profiles and Cowardice, which describes how the Inquirer. Constantly leaning over backwards to accommodate the local right wing that makes a lot of noise. Uh, it's, it's it's not a good paper. It has it has certain certain merits, but it, it's a cowardly paper. And one of its features is is precisely this: that they are not prepared to, to make to create a real public sphere in which all sides can or can debate in which fair views are given to, to critics, they, they tend to be a conduit to a large extent. And, and, and sad to say, Knight Ritter is in fact one of the better, in my opinion, one of the better uh, news organizations in the country yeah, yeah. Uh, in this in this respect. Uh, it's all downhill from there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is better. And actually, before Knight, before Knight went in and then Knight Ritter took over the Inquirer, was run by Walter Annenberg. And it was an absolutely horrendous paper. It did go, it did jump quite a few notches when the night system took over and then night ridder. But it's been in stagnation and going slowly downhill. You could find yourself bought out by uh, News Inc. Annenberg was, isn't he a, a, a donor for a big, I think there's some, one of the schools at, at Penn, right? Oh, yeah. The I Department taught, of Journalism, the Journalism I even, School. I even taught there. I, I the Annenberg School of Communication is at Penn, and there's one at Southern Cal. And he was a big donor, and uh, uh, he spreads his largesse around. But when he ran the newspaper back in 40 years ago or more, <clears throat> it was a terrible newspaper. It was it was uh, uh, famous for its biases. Interesting. So you mentioned earlier, you know, the ability for the news media to manufacture consent, but it has to be said that it's not always successful. And the thing that I was thinking of, and I wondered whether you might comment on this, was the very concerted effort, very strong attempt earlier this year to abolish Social Security through various ruses, which seems to have largely failed. And I wondered what you might uh, what you might say about that. I didn't really quite hear you. Abolished what? Oh, I see. I, I wanted to mention that the, the the model of manufacturing consent, though, doesn't, to be fair, doesn't seem to always work uh, completely well. For example, uh, earlier this year was the uh, a very serious and well-organized effort to abolish Social Security, and uh, that seems to have largely failed. Yeah, I don't know that I'd say that's a failure of the model, because after what Bush was trying to do, was so, so incredibly outrageous. Uh, it was, it was and, and his arguments were, were so, preposterous. Were so puerile, mm-hmm. so stupid. Uh, 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 and also, it, it, here's a case. See, the model is is at its best when the elite is unified, and the elite certainly wasn't unified in in, in, in this case because there were. It's true that the security industry would love, 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 love to have had this done, but there were lots of other institutions in society, and of course a lot of wealthy people uh, who didn't like this. I, uh, the security industry is not the, the sole power element. I think uh, I think that this was there was a split in the elite on this subject. I think many many people thought this was a right wing security industry uh, uh, wild effort to really not knock over the welfare state. I don't, incidentally, I do not use, I, I've abandoned the use of the word conservative in applying to somebody like Bush or Cheney. These people are absolutely not conservative. They're reactionary. I mean, they're, 
they're trying not to conserve a structure that has been built up over many years. They're trying to return us to something in the 19th century. That's that, right. That's not conservative. No, that's right. So in fact, when we talk about the, the liberal media, you know, the liberal, what is called the liberal media is actually a conservative media. So it, it, uh, it's at best weakly trying to, to preserve old structures in the face of a pretty aggressive right-wing attack. It's in, well, we've often commented on left out that, uh, that, that the, certainly the Bush administration, it's curious that people who call themselves conservatives would support them when they're, uh, they're extremely interventionist on personal yeah. privacy affairs, when on the matters of states' rights, for example, yeah. traditional conservative views, non-interventionism, isolationism, even in foreign affairs. Uh, yeah. These are not conservative positions that they have. Yeah, well, also look at the budget. I mean, actually, I should mention... Oh, the budget, let's not yeah. even... Yeah, I, mean, I know. This is yeah. wild. The, the, the budget... It's outrageous. The deficits and the threat that, that this man is posing are something that, that real conservatives are against. That. And in fact, we should, I should mention that there, there are some real conservatives, you know, who were called, I, I forget the name of the journal, but there's a well-known conservative journal that is very hostile to Bush. And a lot of people, there's a man named Paul Craig Roberts, who used to be a Reagan official and who, who wrote for the Wall Street Journal for mm -hmm. years, he's, he's very strongly hostile. I mean, you know, he, he, he goes much farther than the lip, than liberals in the Inquirer, the New York Times, except for somebody like Krugman. But uh, anyway, there are lots of, of old-time conservatives who really are aghast and, and really uh, are against. So the, the, the ones... The so-called neocons are, are not, that's qualified cons, but they should be called really reactionaries. Right. I think, uh, I think we would or be the first to agree. Or members of the radical mm -hmm. right. So, radical right, too. So um, one of the things I've noticed, I've commented on before, is that the sort of way in which the media generates complacency, I mean, um, the the... the it seems as though Bush has actually committed many impeachable offenses, and one of them is mentioned here on our, our website as well. We can maybe get to that in a minute. Um, but somehow the whole concept of you know even pushing for impeachment is really not, not considered seriously by the news organizations. I mean, you look at the people who present the news, the, the, the sort of... We're supposed to look at them as sort of father figures, uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, the Dan Rathers and the, and the Ted Koppels and the, um, you know, Tom Brokaw's, who kind of explain things and they present it, and they're all very reasonable, and, and, and they're not, and, and you know, they're not saying that the, you know, the, the, the stuff that's happening really is something that, that we should get, be getting excited about and just going crazy about because the stuff yeah. is so outrageous that's happening. But uh, they present it, you know, in this fatherly way. I can't really, I'm not really using the right words, but I, maybe I'm conveying what, you know. The, the, oh yeah. I agree with you 100%. I, I, in fact, in that little article in today's on, on the Inquirer, I mentioned that the Inquirer editors who claim to be liberals, they're very complacent. They, they never are very indignant over, I mean, Bush and his gang have created a, a, a gulag, a torture gulag. And the human beings are being treated like we thought they, they were. They, we're being horribly treated in Nazi Germany and, and in Soviet Union, and we're doing it and on a fairly large scale. And Bush and his guy are arguing for the right to do it. They fought that that uh, McCain amendment. I mean, you would a decent media would be wild over this, but the Philadelphia Inquirer, for example. <clears throat> They got much more uptight over over Monica Lewinsky. Uh, I mean, you could—they they had editorial after editorial. And they actually called on Clinton to resign. Unbelievable! Because of, because of his immorality. I mean, it was a trivial bit of, of uh, nasty little personal crap, but it had nothing to do with public policy. And here, these, this paper and these editors were. Uh, or talk about Bush's policies and his torture and his and this insane. When they treated the social his social security plan, you know what they did? They 
they said, well, he, he's on to an, an idea. It is a real crisis, and the Democrats should come up with something, which was complete bullshit, because he had nothing. This is a non-problem. There's a problem with Medicare and Medicaid. We have medical cost problems, but the Social Security system is, is solid. For it's all that I know. It's, a, it's quite incredible. And with minor adjustments, 50 years from now, it'll be perfectly all right. And here this guy is talking as if it's a crisis now. And they, they don't laugh at him. They don't laugh at him and say that this is a fraud. He's trying to upset a, a good government program because he wants to get rid of the government as, as uh, uh, something that can do reasonable things and that will give people security. He wants to re return us to the 19th century. Yeah, going on torture and the war, they, they have never mentioned the fact that his invasion of Iraq based on lies was a gross violation of international law, the kind of thing that the, the Nuremberg system said constitutes the supreme crime. Right. They've never mentioned that. Bob, maybe you should mention, mention the next topic, the impeachable offense. I mean, it yeah, fits into this. That's right. Uh, one of the uh, points we had on the left out uh, webpage today was this uh, reported in Capitol Hill Blue on Friday. I don't know whether you saw this, where uh, it was, uh, uh, according to the uh, the journalist's name, uh, Thompson, I think his name is, uh, Doug Thompson, yeah, who has uh, reported that in a, uh, in a, in a, uh, a meeting on, on Friday with senators talking about the USA Patriot Act, that Bush, uh, they were saying to him, though it was difficult to, the senators were telling uh, President Bush, so to speak, that he was, uh, that there, there was a problem with renewal of the Patriot Act because it was really seriously in violation of the Constitution. And his comment is, stop throwing the Constitution in my face. It's just a, well, uh, curse word piece of paper. And it's, uh, it's incredible, absolutely incredible. And I should qualify, I want to warn you about that. <laughs> you know, I circulated that document <clears throat> but I got a note from Jim Narekis, who's the editor of Extra, mm -hmm. and he says that Fair. this guy mm -hmm. Thompson is not to be relied on, ah. and that if it, he gave me a, I'll send it along to you by email. Oh, please but, do, yeah. But he said that there are several, he seems to be, uh, he seems to in the past have, have said things that were absolutely not verifiable and seem to have been untrue, and that this, ah. this, would, this is a, a pretty, I mean, I, I got sucked into it, as you, as you did, mm -hmm. but it does seem pretty wild, and uh, you'd think it would be spread beyond this one guy. It, how did he get this information? Anyway, be cautious on that. Topic. Yeah, I see. Uh -huh. Okay, well, that's a, good, that's a good bit of advice. I don't try, I try to be uh, skeptical about the sources uh, yeah, yeah. as well. As a matter of fact, it is plausible that Bush, who is a wild man, and who has been absolutely trampling on the Constitution, why shouldn't he say something like that? Right. It would be consistent. Yeah, but if it's saying something is different, uh, is different from just sort of... Uh, just surreptitiously doing things without explaining why you're doing them. Yeah, that's true. Well, we've been uh, talking with uh, Professor Edward Herman, uh, who is uh, a commentator on uh, domestic and foreign affairs. We've been talking to him about the way in which the uh, news media manufacture consent in the U.S. I recommend you uh, to our listeners that you read his book uh, called Manufacturing Consent. More recently, he has a collection of his writings out, which I think is called, if I can check the title, Professor Herman, the title is uh, Edward Herman Reader, The Myth of the Liberal Media and Edward Herman Reader. And he's also very recently uh, has an article on ZMag.org called The New York Times versus the Civil Society, which is an analysis of some of the recent uh, uh, controversies that have come up surrounding the New York Times and their coverage of our of our political affairs uh, from the viewed from the point of view of the Chomsky and Herman uh, propaganda model. Yes, and the, the the book Manufacturing Consent was reissued with a new edition in 2002, so um, it's got more up-to-date things in it. Not not that it needed to be updated. I mean, the thesis seems to be absolutely um, solider than, than, than ever. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Professor Herman, for being on Left Out. My pleasure. All right. Uh, we'll take, we will take a uh, short break, and we'll be back momentarily. Last night, the um, state of California executed a man named Stanley Tukey Williams, and if you've been listening to Democracy Now!, you probably know quite a bit about it because they've been covering this, this story in detail. Williams was a uh, founder of a um, California gang, I think, in the 70s, 
the uh, called Crips. the Crips, and um, he was uh, convicted of a murder that he's been den- denied um, committing. Uh, den- denied committing the actually four murders that he denied committing, and and he feel, didn't feel he got a fair trial, and he was he was uh, convicted falsely. He claims uh, he's been on death row for twenty four years, and during that time he's um, made a tremendous effort to redeem himself uh, by uh, getting involved in. Um, uh, you know, trying to prevent the development of gangs, trying to prevent gang violence, uh, using himself as, a, as an example of somebody who, who had gone the wrong way and what, what, what could be done and what, what, what peop, how, how to avoid it. Uh, and he, he wrote a book, uh, a children's book about these issues, and he was also um, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Anyway, um, he, was, uh, he tried to apply for camp clemency from Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, who rejected his demand. And, and one thing that I thought I'd, in this bit brief time just mentioned that uh, in the written response uh, denying clemency, uh, Schwarzenegger explained uh, one of the reasons, which was that um, in the dedication in uh, William's children's book, uh, he dedicated the book to a whole bunch of people, um, some of whom are other prisoners on death row. Other ones were uh, famous uh, uh, um, help, uh, people who helped the black community, um, um, like Mandela. Angela Davis, uh, uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, right, all those really great people. But as well, there were some other people, I think, um, uh Mumia, Abu Jamal, and stuff. And so mm-hmm. because of this, because it, uh, he had mentioned these people and he sort of glorified them, according to Schwarzenegger, this meant he had not uh, redeemed himself and therefore must be executed. But I just thought it was a little ironic that he had not, re- re- he had, according to Schwarzenegger, he had renounced, not renounced violence because of this dedication of the book. So he would in response, an violence. Schwarzenegger commits the ultimate act of violence by killing and uh, more, and moreover after all the 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 whole ethic of the of the gang of uh, the gangs like the Crips is the eye for the eye eye for an eye and uh the state of California and we by extension would stoop to the exact same ethic uh in our society yeah, even the mother the, even the mother the, age. the mother of the victim didn't want this to happen it's a awful thing uh, well, thank you for this. Uh, finishes our time for this week. Thank you for listening to Left Out on WRCT. Thank you especially to Brandon Kosinski for producing today's show. We'll be back in two weeks' time, we think.